When I was in seventh grade, I had English right after lunch. The teacher was an older woman who was a very formidable presence. She did not smile much and she ran a tight ship. I liked her fine, although I didn't really have much of a connection with her, and I'm unsure that any of us thought that she really liked us very much. One day she came into the room and it was evident something was very wrong. She had this look on her face that was tragic, and we knew some hard truths were about to come our way. At the age of 13, you know the signs when an adult is going to give a group lecture nobody wants to hear. She stood in the front, and for a minute or so, she was quiet, and we knew it was bad. Finally, she began talking about integrity and the importance of navigating this stage of our academic development. We were not in elementary school anymore, and it was imperative that we understood that learning is not a joke. And we're going to end up in Nowheresville if we didn't get our acts together. Didn't we want to make something of our lives? Here's what happened. She had been putting the final grades into our notebook. Remember, this was the time before teachers had computers and had left it on her desk after school. When she came in the next day, there was hardened chewing gum over a large portion of our grades. At this point, she did something so unexpected we didn't know what to do at all. She started crying. Now this breach was incredibly upsetting <laughs> to her and now we're all in an awkward and weird spot because strong teachers don't weep in junior high. She said there are gonna be grave consequences for the people who did this and she thought she knew who it was, of course, based on where the gum was. <laughs> Although the punishment would be minimal if the crime was confessed. We all know the pain of getting lectured in a group when we've done nothing wrong and perhaps don't have any intention of going outside the standard rules whatsoever. Yet we're a captive audience when the authority speaks and we had no choice but to sit and to listen to what was being said. Our passage today is kind of like that. In one of the most disputed texts in the New Testament, the author is laying down difficult truths they want everyone to hear. Although it's not really clear how many congregate in the congregation are guilty of the crime. The author is talking about apostasy, which is a theological word meaning to fall away or to abandon the faith. There are many references in the New Testament about this. Although these verses in Hebrew spell out not just what it is, but also the results of what happened for those who fall away from God. This was written during the age of persecution, where persecution was accelerating. And for believers in this situation, apostasy was the ultimate sin. To believe in Christ, to be baptized into him, to grow, to say that you're going to be part of his church and his life, and then, and then, to reject him, to leave. That was a huge deal. In times of persecution, of course, people can save themselves by denying Christ, but it's a blow to the church who promises to be faithful to the Savior who gave his life for them. William Barclay, the commentator, calls this part of the letter of Hebrews terrible. These harsh words 
almost meant that the book of Hebrews didn't make it into being an official part of the canon of Scripture. And because we can't just cut out parts of the Bible that we don't like, like Thomas Jefferson did, here we are. So Hebrews 6, starting at verse 4, going through verse 12. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt. Ground that drinks up the rain falling on it repeatedly and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and on the verge of being cursed. Its end is to be burned over. Even though we speak this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray. Lord, may the words I speak be those you want spoken. May the words we hear be those you want heard. May we live to your glory alone, Jesus. Amen. Since it has been a few weeks that we have been in Hebrews, because he is risen, he is risen indeed, I want to remind us of where we've been. Pastor Doug talked with us a few weeks ago about the recipients of this letter and how the writer had said that they have been dull in their understanding. While the writer thinks that they should be more advanced in their faith by now, they're still learning the basics. They should be eating solids, but instead they're still drinking milk. They're not mature in the faith, which leaves them vulnerable to falling away, vulnerable to being apostate. We've talked before about how this is one of the main reasons for this letter. Persecution is getting more intense and the church needs to be strong enough in Christ to withstand it. Some people are considering returning back to the Jewish faith. Spiritual attack then and now is very real. It wears on the soul, causing us to be susceptible to making choices we never would have imagined. There may have been some in this congregation for whom this talk would have no impact because they were already mostly out the door. Maybe, though, they're not the intended recipients. It's hard to tell, but everybody gets the strong reprimand whether they like it or not or whether they need it or not. Has anyone ever worried about you losing your faith? What did that look like? What did they come and talk to you about? I had to think about this. There have been people who have implied or said outright that being a woman pastor means that I'm in sin. I'm not kidding about this. So of course, I guess that would mean that I was in peril. Have you ever seriously worried about the salvation of others? Of course. 
what'd you do about it? Passages like this show how connected believers are and how we need to think about what our responsibility is to one another in the body of Christ. We're going to take this in three parts, noting some main uh, points in each piece as we take them because this is a multi-layered reading. First, we're going to talk about the warning then we're going to talk about the metaphor, and then we will land softly as the writer wants to end on a positive note. So let's talk first about the warning in verses 4 through 6 in this difficult section. What do you hear when the author says it's impossible to restore repentance to those who had once believed? It sounds as though they're saying that once a person truly knows God and leaves, they can never return, which sounds like more of a threat, actually, than a warning there have been various interpretations through the centuries about uh, this difficult teaching. So I'm going to give you a rather simplified version of some of the interpretations so that you can wrestle with what you believe. Whatever you choose, just know that each interpretation has a problem that we have to live with. First, some have said that the writer was just talking rhetorically, meaning this could never happen. But if it does happen, watch out. Now the problem with that thinking is that a hypothetical warning isn't a warning at all, actually. Secondly, others have said that since it's impossible to lose one's salvation, so since people can never fall away once they know Jesus, those who did fall away were never really saved to begin with. Now a problem with this is how the writer describes all the ways Christ had been alive and in the heart of the one who had left. Third, is that a genuine Christian can deny the faith and remain saved although they lose their reward in heaven. They're eternally secure no matter what. Now a problem with this is that Jesus taught that whoever doesn't heed his commands is a liar and the truth is not in them. So that's a problem. Fourth, others have said that since salvation depends on a person's will to believe, then they can choose to walk away from God whenever they want. We've been given free will. A problem with that from this uh, scripture is that according to the scripture, then they can never come back. It's impossible. Now, one of the truths to remember when we come to a thorny, difficult passage like this is that we each bring our own theological bent to it. In the free Methodist movement, the emphasis would be on free will. So we would resonate with the last um, statement that a person, the last idea that a person can walk away. Where we would struggle is that it seems like this is an all or nothing view of God's actions towards sinners. And we're all about God's love. God's love always welcomes people back. While we try to navigate the narrow way, we would have a hard time saying that repentance is ever impossible. How many times do I have to forgive, Lord? 70 times 7, or how we would interpret that? Every time, anytime someone needs forgiveness, we forgive. God's mercies are new every morning. With God, all things are possible. But we recognize that there's mystery and how much God keeps us close to him and how much free will we actually have. Not being able to be restored again seems to have something to do with all of the ways that the person experienced God. That's how I hear the writer saying this. 
They had found the light in the world. They had shared life in the spirit. They had tasted Jesus's gifts and power, meaning they experienced forgiveness. They knew his supernatural presence and manifestations. This doesn't sound like a person who's not really saved. It sounds like a person who truly had surrendered their life to Jesus and Jesus was with them. How does a person like that walk away? We don't know, but it happens. And then comes the second punch in those same verses. The act of falling away, the writer says, means that they are crucifying Christ again, that they are holding him in contempt. Again, when we think about the context of the letter, this makes sense. The writer has been urging Jewish Christians to stay in the faith, to not return to Judaism, because if they did, they would have to denounce Christ as the Messiah. Now, instead of being their savior, he would be a blasphemer to them. So they weren't just going away. They would have to fully reject Christ. More than one commentary I read likened those who fall away to those who rejected Jesus on Good Friday, who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. When we think about our context today, we have maybe known more than a few people who drifted away from the faith or who walked away from the church, but maybe not with this kind of absolutism. And it's usually about something that doesn't work for them. They simply began doing their own thing. God didn't answer their prayer. They had a huge disappointment or tragedy in their life and God didn't help them. Maybe they don't honestly wanna deal with their struggles or fully surrender, or they just couldn't take the church anymore. Maybe. They believe the lies of the enemy. This is an insidious kind of apostasy in some ways, wanting God to meet them on their own terms instead of the other way around. We meet God and he is holy and we humble ourselves at his feet, embracing who he is in our lives, engaging our hearts for what he wants and his will. Yet the writer here would say, maybe that's the point. Leaving for any reason means that Jesus is no longer a person's savior. And what that means is that if he is not the Messiah, then they're saying he's a person who deserved crucifixion because he lied about it. He's an imposter. And if a person is fully committed to that narrative, then they're not even close to repentance. God has given us a way to salvation, and whoever walks away from Jesus walks away from the only forgiveness, the only way to forgiveness that we have. So I've said a lot of words. So just pause for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to distill in your own heart and mind what it is that he is saying to you through this scripture right now. The risen Christ is among us. And we want to acknowledge his presence, his life-giving, his life-giving presence to us. And we want to affirm our collective life in him. 
Let's talk about the metaphor here in verses seven and eight, which is steeped in Old Testament history and in a few different Bible passages meant to impact the community as a whole. The point of the image is to highlight the impossibility of those who reject Christ being able to find repentance again. They're using a metaphor to shore up their argument. The rain from God falls on everyone, but only those who receive what he gives as a blessing will thrive as a crop useful for the kingdom. If what God gives is meaningless to the receiver, then they're going to be thorns and thistles and that person is cursed. Again, think about this in terms of maturity and a whole local congregation of believers and what their ethos is in terms of growing in Christ, in terms of who they are and what they encourage one another to in terms of discipleship. If they're not willing to grow, if they have a lack of hunger for God's word, the author is saying, yeah, eventually, they're going to abandon Christ's life altogether. Now we can read this and think about the soils from the parable that Jesus told, which resonates because these words from Hebrews are actually words about the heart. There's also a passage in Deuteronomy 29 that describes the fate of those who turn away from God, who think that they're safe, even though they persist in going their own way. And there's another image in Isaiah 5, maybe a familiar one, about the vineyard that was trampled down that becomes a wasteland where thorns and briars take over, where they grow up in a community's life because God's people neglected his justice. Again, the writer is implying that we as humans are all one thing or another forever. There's no allowance for process here or any kind of grace. Can you see my theological bias coming through here? Yet the ones whose hearts drink in the presence of God's will, of God's love, will, will not only be fruitful, but will receive a blessing from him. Those who reject Christ have worthless lives, whose lives are cursed. So we pause right now again and we ask, what kind of nourishment are we receiving from the Lord right now? What kind of growth are you experiencing right now? God is the one who brings the growth. He's the one who brings the fruit, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience. What fruit is God bearing in you right now? If you can't see any, if you can see a few briars and thistles, it's time to take that to the Lord. From this, we might also ask God to show us those in our lives who are struggling in their faith, who are struggling to receive the nourishment that God repeatedly is pouring down on them. And how might God want us to come alongside them to bring new life? In our last few verses, 9 through 12, we see the author wants to give the audience a soft landing. The tone changes instantly because they use the term beloved, which is the only time in this letter that the author calls the audience that. They say also 
that even though they had to give an admonition to everyone, possibly for the benefit of just those who were considering defecting to Jesus, they are confident of better things that are going to come in the believer's lives, greater things, greater things that are going to come. God is not unjust. He will not disregard their love for one another and the ways that they serve the saints. Finally, finally we have a piece of assurance of God's character whose depth of love for his children is more than we can ever imagine or hope for. We believe God's grace goes before us so we can actually be able to reach out in repentance and hope. There's some exhortations here that we want to notice because they have relevance for our lives today. Keep showing the same diligence of love for God's people so you can realize the full assurance of hope. Don't be lazy. Be good stewards of what it is that you have been given. Imitate those whose faith you can learn something from. Others have gone before you who have known hardship, who have experienced persecution, and they have kept the faith. How did they do it? Imitate them. Talk to them. Be mentored by them. God keeps his promises to us so we can keep our promise that we will love him and honor him and worship him and obey him all of our days. Here we see faith, hope, and love, the three attributes that are so evident in our character, those things that are glaring when they're missing. And all these require patience on our part as we encourage one another and as we live out what we have committed to together. One of the boys in my English class confessed. The teacher had thought that they were more students who were in on it, but in this case, the gum guy worked alone. Ironically, that guy is a teacher today, which would have made Mrs. R glad for the ways that her speech, given to an entire audience for the benefit of one, helped shape the trajectory of his life and probably ours as well. It would have been bizarre if she would have said nothing. If she would have done nothing. You see, those who are in position of authority need to speak up, even if it's to say the hard, awkward, awful things that none of us want to hear, because the intentions of the heart is hidden. It's necessary sometimes to give blanket admonitions because you never know who needs to hear it. The Lord knows those who are secretly fed up, those who aren't saying anything, those who are close to walking away from him. John of Chrysostom said, It is better that I should scare you with words than you should sorrow in deeds. When is it impossible to be restored to God's grace? Where is the line of no return? Repentance is not a theological construct. It's an essential matter of the heart between God and his people. It is individual, and it is a posture of a community of faith before our holy and good and perfect Savior. It is absolutely not possible, of course, for the church alone to restore anyone to repentance divorced from the Spirit. 
and it's impossible to restore anyone who is not willing to be restored. These warnings, this warning was meant for those who would be returning to a place of denying Jesus as the Messiah. And it's the same today. Either Jesus is the long expected one, or he's not. And that also is not just an intellectual decision that God asks for. It's a decision that one gives with one's whole self to submit to the will of God with every part of who we are in the every day of our lives. Because if we don't, Jesus says, not everyone who calls Lord, Lord to me in the last days are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says he will turn away those who never knew him, those who never acknowledged him here. That's the reality we are left to grapple with in our prayer time today. Repentance is not a one-time event for salvation. It is a daily surrender of our actions and our attitudes that don't glorify our Lord and Savior. There can be no repentance for a heart that is not sorry, for a proud heart or one that thinks it has done no wrong. It is impossible for God to move. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.